0: Hello, this is New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast about science fiction, books, and writing. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Having the Last Laugh edition. With me today is a writer whose debut novel gives a unique twist to a tried and true science fiction theme, which has, for the past few months, turned into more than fiction but a way of life. The Down Days by Ilsa Hugo is about a pandemic. And though everyone is encouraged to wear masks in Sick City, a stand-in for Cape Town, South Africa, which is where the story takes place, the disease doesn't manifest like an ordinary infection. But we'll get to that in a moment. Ilsa Hugo is on the line with me now from her home, six time zones away in a suburb of Cape Town. I am so happy to have you on the show, Ilsa.
1: Uh, Thanks so much for having me. (laughs)
0: I'm sure everyone is asking you some variation of this question, but it seems impossible like it would be interview malpractice for me not to ask. So what is it like to write a book about a pandemic and then have a real worldwide pandemic come along just before your book comes out?
1: It's an incredibly surreal experience. I mean, I started writing this book six years ago, and I'm sure you know publishing is really slow. So the book has... Had has been finished. It had been finished a long time before um, COVID nineteen hit. So for it to like be published right in the middle of all this is the most surreal experience. I can't even begin to um, start to explain it.
0: There are a lot of details that you imagine that are actually playing out. I mean doing funerals online, uh, getting food delivered rather than going to the store, which that's been a big thing here in New York City for, for people who can afford the delivery. And, of course, wearing yes, yes. wearing masks. You know, everyone's wearing masks. And, and there's even little details you get, like walking down the street. You can't see when someone smiles, so people nod. I mean, we've all discovered that here in New York. We don't know what people are thinking because everyone's wearing a mask. yes. You even have some people drinking bleach, which, of course, makes me think of our president. And I think, oh, he must have gotten an advanced copy of your book because there's no other explanation for why (laughs) he would have suggested that injecting bleach might be a cure for COVID-19. But he probably doesn't read anyway. So (laughs) my point is you got a lot right. But I'm wondering, now that we're in the middle of a pandemic, are there some details that you're observing behaviors or practices that you're seeing in real life because of the COVID-19 pandemic that you hadn't thought of and that now you wish had been included. I mean, really, you did get so much right, but now that you have this real life example, I just wonder I wonder what you're thinking.
1: So, yes, it's it's so interesting being a writer and as I said, having thought about all of this for about 6 years and seeing a lot of it actually come to life so there are a lot of small details that I kick myself for never thinking about like the way that your glasses fog up when you're wearing a mask for example all these tiny tiny small like the the fact that you get acne some people because if for, from wearing the mask too long small silly details like that and just the way like even I've noticed I have a young son and the way that he is struggling to interact with people um, now that he can't read their faces and lip reading I mean if you're deaf and you have to lip read these all these small details are really interesting to me and then also another detail that so I did a lot of historic research and some of the stuff I got right is obviously um, from observing and um, things that happened in past epidemics, but something that you can't really understand until you experience it is how, in the beginning of this epidemic, everyone was taking it, or a lot of people were taking it fairly seriously, and they were quarantining and self isolating. And now, if you go to the shop, you have people acting as if we're not in an epidemic at all. It's as if people can only emotionally stress about it or think about it for a certain period of time and then they kind of go back to their lives and it's almost as if you go into Cape Town today it's almost it's except for the masks it's almost as if we're not in an epidemic at all so that kind of psychological aspect that the way that people think about a situation like that and how people adapt I think is an important part of my book but I didn't quite understand the level of adaptation and how quickly we have normalized something very abnormal, I think.
0: Very interesting point. And of course, we're seeing that here in the United States, too. And I think we all kind of feel it. And I suppose sad to see because we're still in the middle of the pandemic. And it's been proven now that mask wearing and some of these precautions people are taking, uh, we are been, been told to take, actually do work. Yes. So fingers crossed that some of that sticks or as much of it as possible sticks yes i said in the opening that the pandemic that's killing people doesn't manifest as an ordinary infection could you talk about what the illness is and how it manifests
1: in my book the illness manifests as um there are various physical symptoms and um, some of them loosely modeled on on ebola because that was happening while i was writing the book but the major symptom is uncontrollable laughter. People kind of laugh themselves to death, literally. And that was based on something that happened in Tanzania in 1962, where um, it was an actual laughter epidemic where the government at first thought it was a viral illness and later they um, came to the conclusion that it was a form of mass psychogenic illness or mass hysteria. And in my book the characters are in the midst of this epidemic that no one is ever quite sure what it is. There are all these rumors and superstitions and the government isn't giving them enough concrete information so that no one's quite sure what's going on and what is it. Is it all in their minds? But obviously people are dying. So it's a real illness, but, but no one really understands where it came from and what it's all about the science behind it, etc., And I did that quite deliberately because while I was writing it, our country was in a kind of an unstable place politically, or at least when I started the novel. And we had a president who believed um, that you could um, prevent HIV AIDS just by showering. And I suppose life felt very absurd to me. And I felt... To a certain extent, that South Africa, we we hadn't quite dealed from the wounds of apartheid, and um, everyone, well, at least on the more privileged side of the scale, we're trying to kind of, just say, you know, it's happened, it's over, let's move on. But it's very difficult to move on when a lot of a large part of the population are still dealing with the physical implications of apartheid and the psychological implications. So I was reading up about mass hysteria and they were saying that um, scientists believe that it's a um, physical manifestation of, of a society under chronic stress. And I just like that idea because I do feel that even with the crime um, rates in Town, etc., I, I do feel that in a certain way we are a city under chronic stress. And I just felt that kind of giving it that absurd angle, I just like the absurdity of it. For, um, for one, but I also just thought that it really resonated with me. It it was a nice way kind of to put an absurd twist on something very real that is kind of still presently um, happening in the city, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did want to ask a little bit about the history of South Africa As you know, in the United States, and I think in many countries around the world right now, there is a huge conversation going on about the stark inequalities between blacks and whites. And while race isn't explicitly an issue, there's a lot of customs you describe and Afrikaans slang. Yes. So there might be things that I was missing that are, in fact, exploring racial issues but I'm wondering how the history of apartheid and white supremacy affects your characters' views and, and impacts the story.
1: I, I do think that it impacts the characters. And I I said to someone else in an interview a while back that I think every single South African novel ever written is about apartheid in some way, even though it doesn't necessarily maybe mention apartheid in the novel. Because I do feel it's, it's, it's such a fresh issue for us that we're all constantly aware of it and just the way that the characters interact with each other and through small comments etc it's, it's 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 always on the surface and you can't really ever escape it as a author I think it would be irresponsible to escape it firstly but I also think that it's just impossible it's too close to the surface still and even the way that Cape Town I'm, be, I'm very interested in Cape Town as a city and the history of the city I a few years ago when i started the novel i was or just before i started it i did a lot of research about cape town because i was a freelance journalist for time out cape town so i so i did a lot of research about the history and it that his, that interest in the history of the city grew and also just cape Town's a cape town is a very interesting city because it's wedged between the mountain and the ocean and then we have all these other suburbs kind of on the edges And because um, something called the Group Areas Act um, that was instated in the 50s um, pushed a lot of other cultures out out of the city and only the privileged whites stayed in the city, that changed the shape of the city and it changed the culture of the city in a big way. And um, that sense of equality, spatial inequality, is still a very real thing that we We're dealing with today and it's very hard to, um, you know, address something like spatial equality and a lot of smart people have been talking about it about ways to do that. But yeah, so all these kind of small things and they are in there and I didn't want to make it explicit because in some ways I think as a white author, I don't really feel like race is my story specifically i i don't really feel comfortable exploring it in a very explicit way because i don't feel it's it's my story to tell but i did want to bring it in there through kind of references to slavery and the shape of the city and a lot of the history in the novel like the tunnels underneath the city etc it's all based on actual history and also (laughs) um sorry i'm talking a lot now but um I did a lot of research on disease, the history of disease, and the history of epidemics in Cape Town. And one of the things that came through again and again and uh, was how disease and epidemics have shaped Cape Town culturally and so socially, um, um, culturally and socially, and how disease has been a vehicle to give voice to a lot of prejudices and. Yeah, so that kind of inequality and disease—the way that those two kind of have worked together to change the shape of the city—is quite interesting to me.
0: Well, I'm curious to hear more about that. How did disease allow people to give voice to prejudice?
1: Um, for example, there are a lot of different examples, and but the one that comes to mind now immediately is during the bubonic plague. Um, if you if you were diagnosed with plague your house would just be sterilized if you were white. But if you were not white, you would be sent um, to kind of these isolation camps on the Cape Flats. And the Cape Flats, historically, is where people got sent um, in the 1950s after the Group Areas Act, when the government pushed people out of the cities, they sent them to this very barred, desolate, sandy waste. Land, and um, interestingly, you would think that that only happened then, but it actually happened during bubonic plague already. And um, Africans actually needed plague passes to travel, which is another thing that I have the passes in my novel. Um, the idea for that came from these plague passes that people needed to travel. And there are, there are um, so many different examples um, during smallpox, and, um, yeah i I can go on and on (laughs) well let's
0: hear about one more about smallpox because it is fascinating to especially now when we're experiencing a pandemic to hear how something like that fear of disease contributes to fear of the other and how it has shaped yes human culture so let's hear if you don't mind I'd, i'd be curious i'm interested to hear about smallpox and then we can go on and talk about some of the characters in the story
1: for example, um, the Koi believed that, um, so we, had the local population when the Dutch came to South Africa, um, they were called the Sun. and a huge um, number of them died because of the smallpox pox um, epidemic, and they actually believed that the Dutch bewitched them. And the, all this distrust that we're experiencing with the government now, you can see these things right throughout history. Um, with smallpox as well, the Muslim population, they didn't trust the government because the government obviously didn't always have their best interests at heart. So they would suck the vaccinations out because they also um, believed these kinds of things. And they were also on both sides during that time in colonialism, there was this idea that the Dutch believed that the the slave population, when there was a disease, for example, were bewitching them. And it's just kind of all these kinds of different Layers.
0: Let's move on to talking about some of the characters in the story. You've got a lot of different characters, lots of points of view. Most of them are just scraping by, living on the margins. Do you have a a favorite character among them?
1: Uh, That would be hard. I think I really like Fred Mostard because he's kind of my comic relief character, but I also think he's got a lot of heart, and yes, I I just, I just love writing him. and he has, he's got a very distinct way of speaking, and I just enjoyed his kind of colloquial the slang, and yes, I quite liked him as a character.:
0: He's a sin-eater, is that right?
1: That's correct.:
0: So could you describe what that is? What is a sin-eater?
1: So, a sin eater is something that I took um, from, it's a it's a European concept, and mm-hmm. the idea is that his forefathers brought it to South Africa, and I've kind of put my own um, spin on it. So, traditionally, a sin eater would be the person, if you die, he would literally sit with the body and have a meal and eat that person's sins away and internalize those sins. So, he would take your sins upon himself when you die. But I played around with it a bit and kind of put my own twist on it. And because he is also a character who has to survive in these uncertain, unusual times, he has kind of broadened the scope of his portfolio and he does all sorts of other things, ghost busting, ghost eating. And he's also gone a little bit into traditional medicine so he's just kind of an all-round mystic mr fix it if for want of a better explanation
0: (laughs) and let's talk a little bit about tomorrow she's a pretty important character in her relationship with faith so tomorrow is a teenager is that right Uh, and she and her baby brother have lost their parents
1: Yes, she's a she's a young girl on the cusp of becoming a teenager, and she is um, she lost her parents and she's looking after her baby brother on her own.
0: Towards the beginning of the story, someone kidnaps the baby brother and she has a hard time getting the authorities to look for him and eventually she connects with this other character faith who calls herself a truthologist yes i thought it'd be interesting to talk about their relationship why does faith want to help tomorrow and and what is a truthologist
1: so (laughs) basically faith Um, I also quite she really grew on me um, throughout the novel throughout writing her character she lost her son to to um, the laughter quite a few years back and um, I think all the characters in the novel they have different ways of dealing with their grief and for her she met this character called Lawyer who is a journalist who works for this very dodgy tabloid called the truth and because of the loss of her son she has lost faith in the government she has lost faith in science because she comes she feels like the system has failed her and now she is looking for she's struggling to connect with people but she is still very kind of a nurturing kind of a person but she's kind of holding herself back in a sense, but she's she's also trying to make sense of this new world. And one of the ways that she does that in the beginning of the novel is by being interested in all these crazy, strange conspiracy theories as a way of um, finding kind of a new faith, new faith in something and trying to make sense of the world that she feels has betrayed her. Um, and... A truthologist is basically... So I play a lot with the, with the notion of truth. I've always been interested in the notion of truth, especially in a country like South Africa, where I grew up as a young child. Um, when Mandela was released from prison, I was about 11, 12. So there was this narrative that we learned in school before he was released from prison, and then that narrative changed and the history changed afterwards. So I've always been quite interested in this idea that history is written by the victor and that there are different versions of the truth Not that, I mean, it's not all truth obviously, but there are different versions of the same event and Faith as a character and also the underground library I talk about those are both ways for me to deal with that and Faith as a character likes to find patterns in random data and she's very interested in understanding the world and with this friend she becomes um she starts moonlighting as a detective and she because she believes that the government isn't doing enough she kind of feels that there are all these people in society that aren't being helped by the government and that don't have money to pay someone else and they and she feels that the police i mean uh they don't have the capacity to deal with all of this so she feels that she wants to make the difference, she wants to help, and that she has this unique perspective on things, and it's also just a way, I think, for her to deal with her grief, and she starts moonlighting as a detective, but she calls herself a truthologist, because she, I think, is grappling with this idea of truth and she wants to shine a light on it.
0: Well, I also want to ask you about the underground library, but I want to go back to Nelson Mandela for a second, because I'm fascinated about this idea that before when you were younger than 11, you heard one version and then afterwards a different one. I mean, that's a fascinating lesson in spin doctoring and power and literal whitewashing, I suppose. So what were the two versions? Although I can imagine generally
1: what they are. Could you explain? So I was very lucky to have liberal parents who <laughs> taught me right and wrong from an early age. But still, what we read in the newspaper, we didn't really understand the extent, or at, at least me as an 11-year-old girl, because I think my parents obviously shielded me from some of it. So I didn't really understood the violence and the extent of it. And obviously, I think if you're in that bubble, you, you don't really want to believe... The worst of it, and if the newspaper tells you, you know, it's not really so bad. I think it's very easy to fall into that safety net and to not really examine it too much. And I think I only really understood everything that had happened. I mean, not even half of it, but a lot more um, when I start when I went to university and when I started learning about all these things, and that really opened up my mind. Um, and sh- I think that's why. I I think it's changed the direction of my life and it's made me more interested in kind of really examining things from different angles and not just kind of.
0: You're talking about the, the violence of apartheid and the cruelty yes. and the horrors and the oppression of the black population.
1: Yes. I mean, we knew it was going on, but as an 11 year old, I had no idea. To, and obviously, you hear the version in the newspaper and the version in the newspaper is always trying to kind of soften it and to spin it in a different way and this is why we did that that is why we did this and and also and they also played on white suburban fear i i have this very vivid memory i was in a lift club when i was 11 years old and one of the kids in the lift club was telling me like um are your parents stockpiling canned goods because the swat which was like the black fear They are going to attack us um, now that, you know, Mandela is out of prison and now that things are changing. And I remember, like, going to my mom and I, you know, she obviously wasn't stockpiling canned goods. But just kind of, that was kind of the general sentiment in the neighborhood. I lived in a very white, middle-class neighborhood. That was the, there was a huge fear among, you know, there's always, I think people always fear what they don't understand. And there was a great uncertainty and... Yeah, so I think, but it's interesting too to have lived in a time where you could really see, made aware of how history is written by the victor, in a sense.
0: Well, tell me about the underground library. It's a secret place, and access is strictly limited, and it grapples with some of what you're talking about. It it contains accounts of history that are told from many sides. So what is actually in there and what is its purpose?
1: So um, it was started by a freed slave and the idea was that in, th- in South Africa, for example, um, you don't have nearly as many accounts from slaves as you have from colonialists. And that's so sad that all that history has just been lost. And the library deals with that since um, colonial times, anyone could their their voice, their oral history could be heard. So it, it gave people a safe space to write down their own history or communicate their own history. And these librarians, these secret librarians are kind of keepers of this history, and then what I start dealing with, and it's a very noble cause. And lawyer, one of the characters in the novel, who is also a tabloid journalist, he's one of the the secret underground librarians, and he believes that truth is completely relative, and you can never censor people's views, and you just have to collect information. It's not your job to censor. Very much similar to what we're seeing with Facebook at the moment. And then Faith as a character really buys into it in the beginning, but then she starts to question it because I suppose this is something that I have had to deal with coming from a very postmodern place and really believing in this idea that we should really listen to people and that history should be a very holistic thing and you should hear um, accounts on all sides. And then going into the Trump era and the social media era and really with these social media algorithms kind of creating these thought silos where you're only hearing the information that you already believe in, and it's fed to you in these feedback loops. And I suppose that was something that I was grappling with as well. How do you balance these two? How do you give people space to tell their stories? But understand that, you know, this concept, concept of the relativity of truth can actually be very dangerous at the same time if wielded by the the wrong people.
0: There's one other thing I wanted to discuss, which is an important part of the book, and it involves ghosts. But I also don't want to ruin the story, too. Yes. But I wonder if you could just talk about why that is a part of the story I mean there are ghostly characters and of course there's so much death in the story because it is about a pandemic and people are dying and people are traumatized by deaths that they've experienced in their lives the loss of loved ones how did you weave and why did you decide to make this also in a way a ghost story
1: so there are different reasons. Um, two main reasons. Well, Also, I, I just like the idea of a ghost story. I thought it was sounded like a cool idea. And secondly, I do think ghosts are a metaphor for the burdens of the past that we have to deal with in order to kind of create a better future. And coming from a historic um, perspective, just this idea of all these forgotten bones buried underneath Cape Town as a city and how the city is currently dealing with giving a voice to these stories, a lot of these stories that have been forgotten. Also, there's a myth that I mentioned in the beginning of the novel. It's the myth of Van Hunk's and the Devil, which is a very real, quite famous myth about Cape Town. And it's about this pirate's and the um this kind of hundred um, pirates and also the devil and they're sitting on the mountain and one day the pirate goes onto the mountain to smoke his pipe and then the devil um is there but he doesn't realize it's the devil it's a stranger because the devil is wearing a hat obscuring his horns and the devil challenges the pirate to a smoking duel and because Van Hunks is such a fantastic pipe smoker, the deal just continues on and on and on for years and years and hundreds of years. So that today when we are looking at Table Mountain and we see this cloud of smoke over the mountain, it's just Van Hunks and the devil and they're just sitting there still smoking their pipes. And I love that story. I've always loved the story. And I really liked the idea seeing all the violence that has happened in in our history, this idea of Cape Town being a city and being overlooked by the devil and a pirate. And that's kind of got me thinking about this whole idea of purgatory. And yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but just this idea of this city of sin and how you deal with these sins of the past and the sins of your forefathers And Ghost just seemed like a nice metaphor. Obviously, that's not the main focus, but it's kind of an underlying layer that I was playing with.
0: I want to thank you so much for spending what is kind of the beginning of your evening and my morning here in New York with me uh, to talk about the down days. I, I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday further.
0: Thank you so much. I've been talking to Ilsa Hugo about *The Down Days*, which came out in May from Skybound Books, which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster. You can subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction so you don't miss an episode, and leave a review to show your support. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, author of *The Alternate Universe*. I produce and edit the show. The New Books Network is fearlessly led by its founder and editor, Marshall Poe, and is tirelessly assisted by co-editor Leanne Wilson. Take care, everyone, and thank you so much for listening.